Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, we're going to get into this uh, message. We have lots of visitors today, and uh, we're in the middle of a series. We're actually past the middle. We're over half, but we're in the, in the middle of a series. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Luke. And there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke. We're on chapter 16 this weekend. And uh, every weekend, I just take a new chapter. I take one thing out of that chapter, a story, a parable or something. And we hit that hard. And then the next week, we move to the next chapter, right? And so you're catching us in the middle of this, uh, of this series. And today, I've been looking forward to this message now for a little while already. Because I just love taking on some of Jesus' wackiest parables. And this is one of those parables. This is the parable of the dishonest manager. This parable has caused many a Christian to scratch their heads and go, what? One of, you know, part, to, part of what I do as my job here as pastor here is I respond to people's questions, many of you, and I love this. I love this part of my job, but many of you, as you're reading your Bibles and, and you're having your devotions, you know, every week I'll get questions. People send me questions. I just read in my Bible this. What in the world? I got one just this past week on Deuteronomy 25, 11 to 12. You should look it up sometime and you'll see why they had a question. But anyway, uh, this uh, Luke chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager, is one of those passages that over the years I have gotten a lot of questions about. And so I'm going to read you the first nine verses, but we're going to cover the first 13 verses of this chapter uh, in this message. But I'm going to read it to you and then we'll pray and uh, work our way through it. So Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Verse two, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And the man said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly. Right? You notice that word, quickly. Anytime there's something shady going on, it's hurry up, Right? This guy knows he's in a gray area. Just sign quickly and let's do this. Sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Okay? So far in this parable, nothing too shocking. And if we were going to guess, if we hadn't ever read this parable before, if we were going to guess, we would just think, okay, Jesus is telling this parable about a dishonest steward, and now he's going to slap the guy upside the head and say it's terrible to be dishonest. But this is why, this is, one, this is just, again, one of those things, as we've seen as we were working through the book of Luke, this is one of the things I love about Jesus. He never, ever says what we think he's going to say. And one of the things I'm looking forward to Jesus, I'm going to tell you something. Some of you who are afraid of heaven because it's going to be forever, I know some people, just the thought of forever bothers you. I'm going to tell you something to encourage you. Once, even after we've been in heaven for 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, heaven is never going to get boring. It's never going to get old. Jesus will still have the same power to surprise us then as he does now. You just, you can't tame him. You can't put him in a box. And so we would think, okay, this is where this parable is going, but I want you to see where this parable is going now. Look what he says in verse 8. 
The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What in the world? Now, some of you may be planning to leave this message early, so I'll just tell you right away, he is not saying we should be dishonest. I don't want you to take this out of here. I will get to that later in the message, but just in case you leave early, there's enough rumors about cell phone going around this town. Anyway, <laughs> I heard some new ones yesterday. I find it very amusing. But anyway, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let's pray to Jesus, the Lord of this universe, who gave us this parable. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are sovereign over all, and we love you. We love that you are a little bit unpredictable, and that your sense of humor. And we love Jesus the way you just cut to the quick into our hearts, and you demand repentance, and you're no holds barred. And we love you, and we come to you. We need your grace and we need your love today, and we need a touch. There's a whole bunch of people in here, and all of us coming here with different situations, some of us with real struggles coming in here, and others of us in a different place in our lives. I pray that you would use your word to speak to all of us at our different places, but that you would speak to each one of us and touch us by your spirit. In your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, let's work our way through this parable, shall we? Verse one, Jesus starts this parable, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, the important part to notice here is at the beginning is that this manager, he's not dishonest yet, okay? The dishonesty is going to come. He's not dishonest yet. At first, the rich man just calls his manager to him because he's wasting his possessions. So I don't know why. He's incompetent, probably some combination. He's incompetent. He's reckless, he's careless, whatever the case is, he's supposed to be stewarding the master's resources, he's supposed to be taking care of the bills and keeping the numbers straight, and instead he is wasting a lot of the manager's, or of the master's money. And so the master calls his steward, he calls his accountant to account. Verse 2, and he, that's the rich man, called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager, okay? So he fires him. That's what he does. He fires the manager, okay? And, uh, but I want you to notice something here, and this is important. I'm going to sit here for just a couple minutes. Um, we just, we glaze through these, these parables far too quickly. We just read them through, and we don't pay attention. We just think, of course, he fired him, all this sort of stuff. But I want you to notice how he fires him. At first, it seems okay, but actually, what this rich master is doing is incredibly dumb. He, has, he calls this manager who's wasting all his money, who's incompetent, who's reckless, whatever the case is. He's, not, he, he's just wasting the master's possessions. He's not keeping a good accounting of things. And he says, I'm going to fire you. But he doesn't just send him straight home. Like, generally, if you fire someone, you don't send them back to the office for a couple of weeks to write up the report of all the ways that they messed up. Isn't that true? Like, I mean, this guy's been messing up the books for how long already? How's he going to fix things by writing up a report for you? He's going to mess that up. Not to mention now, you fired him. You send him back to the office. He's going to have vengeance on his mind, which is exactly what we're going to read in the passage. So if you're going to fire the guy, I mean, you know, be fair, be nice. You know, give him his severance. Go back to the office with him and let him get his whatever, his pictures and stuff like that, right? 
And then walk him out the door, okay? And lock, give him a, you know, change the locks. But you don't give this guy the books and the office and say, you're fired. But the next two weeks, if you could just go back to the office and kind of fix things up a little bit before you leave. But that's what this rich man does. And you say, well, why are you making such a big deal of this? Well, this is going to come back to us a couple of times in this parable. The reason I'm making a big deal of this is because many of us try to learn too many things from a parable. And the thing you have to understand when you're reading parables, this is so important, not just for this parable, but all parables as you're reading through the Gospels, the thing you have to realize about a parable is this. A parable, Jesus was the best storyteller out there. And he would make up these parables probably most of the time on the spot. And so a parable is just a colorful story meant to teach one main truth. That's it. It's meant to teach one main truth. And usually what happens is Jesus will tell this story, and at the end is sort of this climax, and then he'll explain this whole story, and he was such a good storyteller that it'll stick in your mind, but this whole story was meant to teach you one thing, not 10 things, not 12 things. And the reason I bring this up, very important, is because too many people go to parables and they think every detail in the parable is supposed to be teaching them something. So they read a parable like this and they think maybe Jesus is giving them business advice or leadership advice. And he absolutely is not. He absolutely is not. He's not giving us business advice here. This is how you should fire people. This is actually just, it's just a ridiculous little story meant to stick in your mind, well told, very colorful, but it's setting up the end of the story, which is the one point that Jesus wants to get across to us. Do you, do, does that make sense? Yes. But if you read too much into parables, too many people are going into the parables, and it gets them into all kinds of trouble because they're trying to figure out, you know, like the story of the, the, the shepherd with the 99 sheep, and he leaves the 99 to go get the one. And I hear people scratching their heads like, why does Jesus leave the 99? Look, that's not the point of the story. He never leaves the 99. He never leaves or forsakes us. The point of the story is not that he leaves anyone. That's just a colorful detail to get across the one thing, which is he always goes to find the lost one. Amen? Amen? So the point of the parable is, now this is going to be really important, especially in this parable, and the fact that people don't get this is why so many people are left scratching their heads when they read this one. So all of these details are leading up to one thing. And that one thing is the only thing we're supposed to learn and apply from this parable. Everything else is just fun, colorful details that make it stick in our heads. You got it? So we'll keep going. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, so now he's been fired, but he's kind of got his two weeks notice to go back to the office and mess things up for his boss, okay, which he is going to do. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Okay, so this manager is worried because he's not very employable. He's not handy. He's not good with his hands. He doesn't want to do manual labor, and he doesn't want to beg. He's not very employable. The only job he could do, which was kind of management kind of work, he couldn't do. He messed it up. So this guy's not very employable. He's worried. I've been fired. I've got to figure something out. I've got a couple of weeks now to figure something out so when I'm done, when I walk out this door for the last time, I can be taken care of. And so as we humans tend to be, when our, when our livelihoods are on the line, he gets very creative. Verse 4, and this is where the dishonesty part comes in. At first, he was just in trouble because he was incompetent and reckless and whatever. But now he's going to become overtly dishonest. Verse 4, I have decided what to do. 
so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the man said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he chops it in half. Now, a hundred measures of oil is somewhere 3,000 liters to 3,500 liters of oil, okay? Which is a lot of oil. But especially when you consider, some of you will have, uh, no doubt, maybe the wrong picture of oil. When you read that word oil, you're thinking the black stuff that comes out of the ground in places like Saudi Arabia and stuff like that, right? Or, or in the Alberta sands there and all that sort of stuff. You're thinking black oil. You have to remember here, they don't have cars, they don't have gasoline, they're not pumping oil out of the ground. This is talking about olive oil. So when you're talking 3,000 to 3,500 liters of oil, of olive oil, think of how many olives you have to crush to get that many thousands of liters, okay? We're talking about the yield of maybe 150 olive trees. You're talking here about probably the equivalent of about somewhere around uh, $120,000 in today's uh, day and age, maybe 150 or so, and he just cuts it in half. He has just cost his master maybe sixty dollars to $80,000, one stroke of the pen, okay? So we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. And his whole goal is, he's being creative, I've been fired, i got to do something so that people like me so that they're going to take me into their homes when I'm done, okay? Then verse 7, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And that man said, 100 measures of wheat, okay? And 100 measures of wheat was, uh, was about what we would call 1,000 bushels of wheat, which in those days... Would have, would have covered about uh, 100 acres of yield. And again, this would have been worth uh, many, many thousands of dollars. And then he, he cuts it in by 20%, probably saves again, or probably uh, stealing from his master again, sixty dollars to $80,000. He has now cost his master, you know, well over $100,000. He's ripped his master off, okay? Well over $100,000. It's a lot of money, okay? When just a couple of strokes of the pen... Okay, and then we come to verse 8, and this is the part that get, gets everybody head-scratching, okay? Because this guy is clearly, he's not a good man, okay? He's a dishonest man. And then we get to verse 8, as I mentioned before, and Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And again, we go, what? He commended him for dishonesty. Is Jesus, you know, is Jesus saying it's okay to rip off your employer? Is Jesus saying it's okay to be dishonest? And the answer, again, and we can look at many, 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 many passages, especially considering that Jesus himself is called the truth and the light, that obviously Jesus is not promoting dishonesty. And so again, we come to this point about parables. This is the thing you have to understand about parables. What Jesus is trying to teach in this parable is not that you should be dishonest. This is part of the colorful details of the story meant to teach the one thing we are supposed to apply. You say, well, what's the one thing? Well, in the very next line, Jesus is going to sum up this parable now, and he's going to tell us the one thing we're supposed to take away from this. And it is not that we're supposed to be dishonest, okay? In fact, Jesus repudiates that just a couple of verses later. But here's the one thing that Jesus wants us to get out of this parable, okay? Everything else is just details setting up this one thing. And here's the one thing. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, here's the conclusion, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here's the one thing. All the details in this colorful story are just setting the table for this one thing. Jesus says, I want you to use your money to make friends so you can get as many people into heaven as you possibly can. That is the whole point of this parable. That is the whole 100% entire point of this parable. Everything else is just details, okay? And I'll just take you through this and I'll, and I'll show it to you. First of all, you'll see there the sons of light there at the end of verse eight. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Who are the sons of light? Those who follow Jesus, his followers, his disciples, okay? So he's talking to us. And then he moves on and he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, okay? So what Jesus is telling the sons of light, those who follow Jesus is, I want you to use your money to make friends. Now on the surface, doesn't that sound shallow? Jesus essentially is just saying, I want you to buy friends. Use your money to buy friends. That just seems incredibly shallow, right? But he's got a third qualifier. By the way, I should just say this about the unrighteous wealth there. Uh, people look at that unrighteous wealth and they go, what in the world is that? He's not talking about unrighteous wealth in, the terms of, in terms of sinful gain. He's not talking about wealth that you stole or wealth that you got by some kind of criminal activity or, or something like that. Jesus is taking a poke at the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, if, if you read later in this chapter, the Pharisees are listening in too and they don't like this parable. And Jesus is taking a poke at them because they love money and they see worldly wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And so Jesus is just taking a poke at them. He's just using unrighteous wealth as a label for temporal wealth, the, the wealth in, of this world. He's saying, use the wealth of this world to make friends. Now, if we just stop the sentence there, that would be incredibly shallow, just buy friends. Just buy them gifts and make people like you because of what you give them. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, so that when it fails, because our temporary possessions will not last forever. When it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The whole point of this parable is Jesus says, I want you to use your money to bless as many people as you can so that you can store up as much reward as you can in heaven and get as many people as you possibly can into heaven with your money. That's the whole point of this parable, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, he's comparing us to this manager. We're supposed to be shrewd about this. And darling, if you could just move ahead, there are a couple of slides there. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And here's where Jesus is using this dishonest manager to teach us. See, this dishonest manager didn't leave. He didn't leave it up to chance that he was going to be taken care of after his job was over. He was creative. He was shrewd. He was calculating. He was intentional. How am I going to use my master's money? Now, he was dishonest because it wasn't his money. But how am I going to use my master's money? I've got a couple of weeks here. My job is just about to finish. I've got a couple of weeks. I've got to be very intentional. I've got to be creative. I've got to be shrewd. How am I going to use my master's money in these next couple of weeks in the best possible way so that after this job is over, I'm going to be taken care of? And now Jesus says, this is what I want you to learn from that manager. In the same way, the sons of light should not be careless 
about the reward they're storing up in heaven. Should not be careless about how they're spending their money and how many people are getting to heaven. Not careless. This man wasn't careless. He was shrewd. He was intentional. He was creative. He was calculating. And Jesus is saying in the same way, the sons of light should be calculating. This life is not going to last forever. How are you going to spend your money in this life Calculating, intentional, not just, oh, money's coming in and money's going out and money's coming in, money's going out. No, no, calculating and intentional. How am I going to spend my money so that I can bless as many people as possible so I can store up as much reward as possible for heaven and bring as many people as possible into heaven at the end of it? That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Now, some of you might no doubt have a little bit of an objection and you're going, well, this isn't really fair of Jesus in this parable. Because this steward had an easy time. He wasn't using, he wasn't playing with his own money, right? He was stealing money from his master. He was using his master's money to set himself up for when his job was over. But Jesus is applying this message in such a way that I have to use my money in order to get myself set up for heaven and send as many people to heaven as possible. But actually, that would be a wrong perspective, wouldn't it? Because actually, we have more in common with this steward than we think. Because let's just stop and think about it for a moment. Whose money is our money? Who owns our money? Isn't that true? If we're servants, we like to call ourselves servants of God. If we're servants of God, who owns your business? If you own it, you're not a servant. If you own your money and you own your possessions, you're no longer a servant. You're the one in charge. We actually have lots of in common with this steward. God isn't asking us to spend our money to get people into heaven. He's asking us to do the same thing the steward did, which is playing with house money. I want you to use my money, he says. Use his money to bless as many people as possible and advance the kingdom so that as many people as possible are going to be in heaven someday, that we're going to be calculating about this, we're going to be planned, and we're even going to be creative to funnel as much money that way as we possibly can. We're supposed to be shrewd with God's money in this way. Now, Jesus actually talks about this four verses later in the same passage, and he's making commentary now on this parable, this whole point about the fact that he owns our money. Verse 13, Jesus making commentary on this parable says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's another way of saying that. Either God owns your money, or your money owns you. Either God owns your business, or your business owns you. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is a radical worldview. If we actually live, it's not a radical teaching. If, if you've been in church for any amount of time, no doubt you've covered passages like this. There's a number of passages like this in the Bible that talk about ownership and God's ownership of everything. And it's not a radical teaching, but it's a radical thing to actually apply. Isn't that true? It's one thing to hear it at church. It's another thing to actually feel about your stuff and your money as though it all belongs to God. That's radical. And I don't mean radical in a bad way. I mean radical in a good way. Isn't it true that if it all belongs to God, you have a lot less to be anxious about? Isn't that true? That's right. There's actually a lot less anxiety in this worldview. If you could get it down to the core of your heart, 
that my business and my money and my stuff belongs to God and I'm just a steward. That changes everything about how you worry about stuff. If it's his, it's his. Thank you, Jesus. That's your problem. By the way, that does not mean you shouldn't be paying your bills. Oh, heavens no. I wish it would never be said about a Christian that he doesn't pay his bills. And I know sometimes stuff happens that's out of our control and you can't help it, but then at least go talk to the person and tell them and try to work out some kind of way to help. I wish it would never be said about anybody in this church that there's someone at Southland that doesn't pay their bills. It's just a, it's a horrible thing for your testimony about Jesus Christ. That one was for free. It's not actually part of the message. <laughs> but you know, there's part of, there's a fear thing. There's actually a fear thing in some of you now after I said that. Um, there's a fear thing I know in some of us that we've got to deal with before we go back into this parable. And some of us think if I actually came to a point in my heart where I would think that God owns all my stuff and I'd actually be open, God, you own all my stuff, that's actually terrifying to some of us subconsciously because what we think automatically is that God would make me give it all away. Because that's deep down, that's our picture of God is that he doesn't like it if we're enjoying ourselves here on this earth. He doesn't like it if you have a nice house. He doesn't like it if you have a nice car. He wants you to, to live in a, in, a, in a cardboard box and give it all away uh, to missions or whatever. That's kind of our view of God. And so this teaching, we can't even really enter into it because we're so scared. If I would actually open up my hands and say it all belongs to God, he would make me give it all away and I'd be in the poor house. And let me just, let's just confront that before we get back to this parable. God does not necessarily, now some people, yes, there are people and there's, you know, some of these people he calls on missions. And, and there are people where he's called and said, give it all away, I want you to move out to, to wherever and start this or start that. There's no question. And God does do that sometimes. But for the vast majority of us, God does not want you to give away all your stuff because now you become dependent on the charity of others. And there are many examples, and I'm not going to go to the, all of them right now, and we've looked at this in messages before. But there are many examples of very wealthy people in the Bible who were close to God. I think of Abraham, it repeatedly says of him in Genesis that he was very rich in animals and gold and silver and lands, and it says he was also a friend of God. And King David was a man after God's own heart and also fabulously wealthy. Solomon was even more wealthy. Of course, he went bad at the end, so maybe we won't dwell on that one too long. But anyway, and there was lots of people in the New Testament. I mean, uh, you look in Luke chapter 8, there's a, whole, the, there's a bunch of the women, there's wealthy women that were part of Jesus' entourage that were bankrolling most of his ministry. And Nicodemus and Joseph were very wealthy men in the early church, and neither, they both continue to be wealthy. In fact, this is why Paul says, when he gives instructions to the wealthy in the New Testament, he never says, give all your stuff away. He just says, be generous. Look at this, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Paul says this to the rich. And by the way, many of us here in Canada today, if Paul would see us, he would include us as being rich. But what, what the standard that he calls, what he calls rich, would be many of us here today. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now look at that. Richly, by the way, I just want you to notice that line. There's just for a moment. He does not just richly provide us with everything we barely need. You notice that? He does not just say he richly provides us 
with just barely enough to get by. He says, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not bad to enjoy life. Did you know that? It's not bad. Then what does he go on to say? They are to, here's what they're to do. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves. Remember, the whole point of this parable is sending money ahead, reward in heaven. And here we are at it again. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want you to notice here that nowhere does Paul say that the rich should give up absolutely everything they have so that they now become dependent on others. No. He assumes that they're going to continue being wealthy so that they can continue being generous, so that they can continue in good works, okay? The key that Paul would say to all of us is not God's heart isn't for everybody to lose everything. The point is that God wants us not to just live for ourselves, but to also be generous, to be rich in good works, not just rich towards ourselves, but rich in giving to the kingdom, rich in blessing those in need. That's his command to the wealthy. Biblically, one of the reasons God gives us money is so that we can take care of our own needs and the needs of our families. Let me just show you a couple of passages here, and then we'll get back, back to Luke chapter 16. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, you yourselves know that these hands, speaking of his hands, have ministered to my necessities. He's speaking about hard work. And to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that hard work is something that God likes? Hard work is a gift from God. So it's actually a blessing from God to get a job, to work hard, to be productive, to be successful so that you can take care of your own needs. That's what Paul said. God said, now, and I know, I'm not putting a guilt trip. Some of you here, there's various reasons, disabilities, and various things that you can't work. This isn't a guilt trip on you. You shouldn't be ashamed that you need help. That's just part of, you know, of, of us being in this broken world. But for most of us who can work, it is a gift from God. It's actually a sin to be lazy. It is a gift from God to be able to work hard and be productive so that you can provide for your needs and the needs of your family and those around you. That's from God. God's not asking you to just give it all away. That's part of his blessing, so you're not dependent on the charity of others. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It is a blessing of God to work and be productive, to bless those around you and to take care of you and your family. That's a blessing from God. So hear me when I say this. It is not bad for someone who loves Jesus to live in a nice house. It's not bad for someone who loves Jesus to own a nice vehicle, to enjoy themselves, to go on vacations and stuff like that with their family, okay? God's not mad at you for those things. But here's the thing. Do you only live for yourself? Because you'll notice there's a clear both and here in all these passages. And this is the part that Luke 16, Jesus is hammering home. It's not bad for you to provide for yourself. That's God's blessing on you. Provide for yourself, yes. Provide for your family. Work hard and be productive. Yes, yes, yes. But don't only provide for yourself. Jesus says the treasures of this world are passing away. They're passing away. 
So we need to be like that manager. Rather than just calculating how we can accumulate more stuff in this lifetime, enjoy stuff in this lifetime, but we should be intentional and creative and calculating how can I use my money to make the biggest impact for heaven, to store up the most reward in heaven, to get the most people sent to heaven in the future as I possibly can. That's what Jesus says should go along with providing for ourselves and our families. Amen? And that's the point of this parable. So two things, and then I want to give you some practical thoughts to apply. Two things this parable teaches us about how we should approach financial generosity. Number one, we should be very intentional. Okay, very intentional about being financially generous every year. The whole point of this parable is generosity does not just happen. That's the point. This, this manager didn't just, he didn't just, oh, you know, I just, I'm just going to hopefully something will happen and then I'll be taken care of. He thought about it. How am I going to be taken care of? And Jesus is saying we need to be shrewd like that. Generosity doesn't just happen. Oh, I happen to be generous today, but for the next couple of months, I'm not generous. And then I was generous, and I wasn't. No, 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 no. We should be like this manager. God has given us this money. He wants us to think about it and plan about it. I want to use my money to make an eternal spiritual impact for eternity. And number two, we should actually be creative about thinking of ways we can grow in generosity. We should be creative. How can I give more? You know, instead of, instead of retiring so early, maybe I can, I have one life to live here, and then I have all of eternity to relax. Why wouldn't I work a little bit longer? Maybe do something else. Maybe my body's wearing down, but maybe I can do something a little different, but I want to funnel as much money as possible for the kingdom, for eternity. We need to be creative about figuring out ways we can grow our generosity. Now let me give you three practical thoughts. That's what this parable is teaching. And one of the things that sometimes bothers me in North America is we'll just gladly dive into a passage of scripture and study it, and then you kind of leave. We could just leave the message now and say, amen, go to the baptisms and be done. And then feel good. Hey, we learned that parable, what it was all about. It makes sense to me now. But you know, if you don't do these things, there's no blessing. Jesus said earlier in the Gospels, he said, you know these things, now do them. That's the path to blessing. There's no blessing in knowing the parable of the dishonest steward. There's a blessing for obeying it. So what are we going to do with this parable? Jesus told us this parable to give us how we should live. And of course, there's probably a hundred different ways. There's probably a thousand different ways that this could could apply to our lives in, you know, in our specific circumstances. But let me give you three Basic, basic principles that I think will help us to try to apply this to our lives. Three things. First one is, and the first couple, I'm a broken record. I've been talking about this for a year. And I just keep coming back to it. I just feel like the Holy Spirit keeps speaking it to me. Live within your means. Live within your means. I think the number one reason why many Christians aren't sending more money ahead of themselves into heaven for reward in heaven is not because they're bad, It's not because they don't want to do some of these things. It's because their entire paycheck is taken up. up. Before they even get it, it's already taken up in payments. And they, they love, they would love to give to eternal things. They would love to send people ahead of them to heaven and store up reward. But they bought the biggest house they could possibly afford. They went to the bank and the bank said, you can borrow this much. Well, then we may as well use it all. 
So they got the biggest house they could possibly afford that the bank would give them. And then they got the nicest vehicle. And they got this and this and this. And they put them all on payments. And at the end of the month, every month, it's all spoken for already. There's none left to send ahead. How can you be like this steward? Jesus says we need to be shrewd to send as much as we can ahead. We need to actually live within our means to give ourselves in our lives the margin to be able to give to the kingdom of God, not accidental, okay? We need to make sure that we have money to be able to be generous, which brings up the second thing, another thing I keep talking about, but this is how else do you apply it, this parable? If you don't do these things, I don't know how you can. If you don't live within your means, you can't obey this parable. It's impossible. Number two, be intentional means you budget and plan for generosity each year. Generosity does not happen by chance. That's what Jesus says in this parable. Generosity does not happen by chance. It might happen every now and then, but not the kind of generosity he's looking for. I think every Christian should be disciplined enough to have a budget and follow it. I think every Christian should be disciplined enough to have a budget and follow it. You say, why do you keep talking to us about having a budget? I'll tell you why. Wasting money is a spiritual issue, and I'll show it to you in this passage. I just said, you said, you're stretching this parable now a little bit. Let me show you. It's right in this parable. Starting in verse 10, Jesus gives us commentary on this parable. Look what he says. Luke 16, verses 10 to 13. This is him commenting on the parable of the dishonest steward. This is what he says. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. By the way, time out. I told you Jesus wasn't teaching in this parable that we should be dishonest. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? I want, can we all just sit and think about that for just a moment? If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in the worldly wealth that you've been blessed to whatever, to whatever level you've been blessed, some of us much less, some of us much more. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the worldly material goods that God has blessed you with, what makes you think that God the Father would trust you with true riches? Responsibility in his kingdom, reward in heaven. He says he won't do it. Now, I want you to remember back to the beginning of this parable. Do you remember what got the steward in trouble in the first place? It wasn't dishonesty. It was wastefulness. It was wastefulness. Many Christians don't have a discipline. By the way, I, I want to just come and say, I am really coming against condemnation and legalism these days. I can't stand it. When I talk about this, I'm not talking about, you know, Christians going to the grocery store and agonizing that, you know, do I get the no-name brand or do I get the stuff that really tastes good? You know, that sort of thing. Absolutely not. This is not about being ridiculous. He has give, richly provided us all things to what? Enjoy. Amen. So get the real raisins, not those, you know, whatever. Okay? So it's not, it's not about penny pinching and he's a generous father and he richly provides what we need. He richly provides everything for us to enjoy. This is not about that. But do you have a plan? This is not about you can't, you know, Go have a fun vacation with your kids. But do you have a plan to give? 
Do you have a budget? Budget enough for yourself to enjoy life and do these things with your kids. But be shrewd like this manager. I want to send as much money ahead of me as I possibly can. Amen? Amen. That's right. And some of you, if you would actually get, because it's never even crossed your mind, you didn't grow up in a family where there was a budget. You don't view this as spiritual. You view having your devotions every morning as spiritual, but you don't view having a budget as spiritual. What Jesus is saying here is having a budget is incredibly spiritual. If your money just kind of comes in and goes out and you don't even keep track of it, what kind of a steward are you? You can't have a plan for eternity or for the kingdom, for your money. So Jesus says, have a plan. You go find someone in your cell group or your cell leader and you say, you know, if you're a young person, let me tell you, if you're a young person here and you haven't been in school ministers yet, I highly recommend you go to school ministers. One of the things Dominique and Chris are amazing at are, is mentoring people in their finances and budgeting. It's phenomenal. Even just learning that one thing is going to put you light years ahead for the rest of your life, regardless of what career you end up in. But if you're out of the school, school of ministers time, you go to a cell leader or a family member, a business person, you know, someone who's good with their money and you say, I want to become accountable to you. Would you help me make a budget and stick to it? But this is a spiritual matter, okay? And some of you, it would transform your spiritual life if you would actually get disciplined with your money. You would wonder, a year or two from now, you'd wonder, boy, why our finances are just doing so well? I wonder why. You actually just started tracking. It's not even magic. But Jesus said, at the beginning, he who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Part of it is, he said, oh, you're ready to be blessed with a little bit more. I'm not talk we're not talking prosperity here. We're just talking about doing the right thing. And you'd wonder, I wonder why my, my prayers, I just seem to have this new passion for prayer. I seem to have more and more spiritual responsibility. People are asking me for advice, and I have influence in their lives. And you wonder, I wonder what's going on. And Jesus is saying, Hello. If you're faithful with unrighteous wealth, I'll trust you with true riches. It's tied together. That's Jesus teaching it, not me. I'm just repeating Jesus. That's what he said. If you can be disciplined with your finances, you can be disciplined in pretty much any area of your life as well. It's a test from God. And I have one third application. I want to speak to beginners, people who have never given before, haven't started on this journey. For beginners, start with 10% as a general rule. I think it's important to give people measuring sticks. You preach a message like this, people don't know. Jesus says we've got to be creative about giving as much as we possibly can. So there might be some really zealous young people that are here and they're going, I'm going to give 50% of my income. Well, you know what? God bless your heart. I love the zeal. 50% for most of us will never be sustainable, probably ridiculous, and will get you probably into a lot of trouble. That's why sometimes it's good to have a benchmark. Others will say, oh, I give $20 every now and then. It's not even a sacrifice. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's why I like, I, I think 10%. Now, I want to be real, real clear here. Uh, I want to make sure everybody knows. I'm not, we're not talking about legalism here. Jesus does not say 10% in this passage. And I'm glad he didn't. There's a reason he didn't. And part of it is he doesn't want to stop many of us. We need to go much beyond that. So 10% is not a rule. Nowhere in the New Testament actually does it say you have to give 10% to the church all the time. But I'll tell you what it is. I think it's a great launching pad. It's been proven by millions of Christians over the centuries. Millions. It's like this. It's like devotions. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to have your devotions every day. All it says in the Bible is you should meditate on his word day and night. Well, what does that mean? That sounds like a lot. So when I, if I counsel 
New believers, I might tell them, okay, the Bible says we need the word and we need to be it all the time, but it doesn't tell us exactly how much and, and, you know, every day. So I would recommend start with 30 minutes a day. Give God 30 minutes a day. Now, that's not a rule God said, but it's obeying his word and it's been proven by millions of Christians to be life-changing. Isn't it true? How can you live? How can you abide in Christ if you're not in his word regularly? And maybe a more mature believer, I might challenge them, you should give God the first 60 minutes of your day. And again, it's not because it says in here you've got to do 60 minutes, but it's been proven true. It lines up with what the word says, and it's been proven true by millions and millions of Christians over the centuries. It'll change your life to be in the word of God every day. It'll change your life. It's the same with giving. Jesus doesn't say here 10%. But I'll tell you something right here, right now. 10%. For most of us, it's enough that it's actually a sacrifice. For most of us, if you give less than 10%, You don't even know what it's like to sacrifice. You don't know what it's like to be like this manager who's actually calculating to say, how much can I send? To say, I love you, Jesus, so much, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I have to trust you. It's also not so much that it would actually be insane, which is also important for some people who just don't know where to start. I think 10% is not an ending point. I think it's a great launching pad. And then from there, just like this manager, we can be creative and intentional about how do we grow our giving. And so we start with 10%. You know what Jesus' plan is here on the earth? It's the church. The church is the body of Christ. So you start with 10% to local church, wherever you're from. And then from there, you say, Jesus, you pray and you budget and you pray and you look and you get creative about how can I grow every year in my generosity, giving more and more to meet the needs of people around me and have as many people in heaven as I can when, Jesus, when, when, uh, when my life is done. Amen? Amen? Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I really believe the Holy Spirit right now, he's nudging some hearts and he's asking you to jump into the adventure of giving with him. Until you give Jesus your money, there's always going to be a part of your life it's just going to feel like you can't break through. There's just something so exhilarating when he gets into every area of your life. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and your grace. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your challenge to us to give. Thank you for your many promises, Lord, that as we give and grow in giving, we are storing up reward in heaven. This life and all of our stuff, every house and car and toy and vacation spot is all passing away. But the stuff we send on ahead of us is going to last forever. And you're going to welcome us home into mansions in heaven if we will be generous for your kingdom here on earth. I pray a blessing on every person here today. Give us hope and give us grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.